Hey, it's great to be here. Now, I'm never gonna be as fashionable as Alexis or German. And then I know in just like a week or so, Daniel's gonna be here speaking and it's gonna be hard to compare it. But I'm so excited that during this Lent series that we get to hear from a variety of voices as we dig deeper into our reading plan and our journal. And so this morning and throughout the day, we've been reading and studying in the Gospel of John chapter 13. Our focus passage for our time together right now is gonna be verses one through 17. Now it is a good chunk of text, but it's an exciting story, it's a narrative, so stick with me. Maybe it'll be helpful as I read it. If you're watching on Thursday, you can click over to the notes or Bible tab. If you're watching online at any other time, maybe pull out a version or a print Bible. But here we go, John 13, 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Verse 2, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. Verse 5, after that, he, Jesus, poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. Verse 8, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said that not every one of you is clean. When he had finished washing his feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? Jesus asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. For many of us, this is a somewhat familiar story, but it can have sometimes confusing applications. Like what does this passage lead us to do in the here and now? And that's what we're going to talk about for a little bit during our time together. But all the way going back to verse 1 of our focus passage, we get our first principle. So if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, you can write it down. In the kingdom of God, love is the official and primary language. I mean, think about it. Jesus is on the brink of immense pain. And yet, even though the cross is in view, it's at the forefront of his mind. On his heart are his friends, the disciples, his own community. And then we quickly learn something else right away, a parallel truth, as we continue to read through the first few verses 
of this story. It's that in the kingdom of God, leadership is spelled S-E-R-V-E. Leadership is spelled serve. I think of that great quote from former First Lady Michelle Obama, right? Like, when they go low, we go high. And I think, like, Jesus kind of did that almost to an extreme in the Gospel of John. From his high position, he went low in a posture of serving. And it seems so simple, and yet it's so revolutionary that, that Jesus, and later in the passage, we read this, he says like, yes, you call me Lord, you call me teacher, that's appropriate, but look at the way that I'm going to treat you, and then in response, you should treat others the same way. Theologians call this the image of the servant king. It's pretty paradoxical, right? We, we don't typically pair servant and king. We don't typically pair someone in a high position with a heart or with a, a practice of serving in low places or serving lower functions. But that's exactly what we see in this passage in the Gospel of John. Now, there's a lot of things happening in this passage that we could talk about. There's the interesting relationship between Jesus's foreknowledge Judas and Satan and the betrayal that's about to take place. We could also talk about the seeming aloofness of some of the disciples in figuring out what's going on when Jesus says, not all of you are clean. We could spend time talking about Simon Peter's always can be expected visceral reaction to any circumstance. And and we'll do that a little bit. But the primary thing that we're going to talk about is the image that this passage is trying to convey. And it, it, it circles around. It's focused on washing of feet. And there's three kind of layers to what's happening in the washing of the feet. And the first one is this, that there's a practical relevance to this practice. Now, Jesus wasn't the first person to wash somebody others, someone else's feet in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Just like John the Baptist wasn't the first person to baptize someone in water for religious purposes, right? But what we see throughout the New Testament isn't just God kind of reimagining through Jesus, how people interpreted the law and the story of the Old Testament and Old Covenant. But what we also see is Jesus imbuing practices that already existed with added immense meaning. The practical relevance of the washing of feet is because this was an agrarian and agricultural society. The roads that they had are not like the roads and sidewalks that we have today. And although you may feel, if you live in D.C. or another kind of metropolitan place, that you walk a lot, I promise you they walked more. Sometimes they might have, you know, ridden on a camel or a donkey, but they did a lot of walking, a lot of traveling by foot. And the practical relevance and reality is that their feet were dirty, were stinky, were nasty. They were covered with dust and dirt and dung and whatever was on the road. And there's really no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And that's why when they would enter into somebody's home, particularly to partake in a meal, to experience some of that hospitality, they would need their feet washed in order to enjoy the meal or else the smells from outdoors would quickly overwhelm the senses inside. Now here's where it connects the dots to the second thing we should consider is the cultural reality. 
It was incredibly uncommon, unheard of for a rabbi, a prophet, a miracle worker (laughs) to wash the feet of anyone, let alone their followers, their pupils, or their friends. In fact, customs and practices tell us from that time period that Jewish people didn't often wash feet at all. In fact, it was usually a servant of the house who was of non-Jewish identity, so a Gentile. And then the lowest ranking Gentile at that was in charge of washing the feet of the guests. And we kind of all know why. It was the worst job. It was terrible. If you thought washing dishes were bad, you have never washed another man's feet. So the cultural reality is that this is what somebody would do if they were in a lowly position or a low station of life. And as we think back, this is Jesus and and his followers gathered for Passover. So it's during high holidays where, where those kind of differences between high and low Jew and Gentile are even more in focus, which makes it even crazier to use that word literally that Jesus would do this. And then there's the symbolic ramification. That's the third way we should look at the washing of feet. Because it required Jesus to change clothes. It required him to get out of his seat of honor. It required him to get on his knees to prepare things. A teacher would not normally do that. Things would be prepared for him. And then it seems like he's speaking to each of the disciples as he's washing their feet. And then he says later that this is going to be an example for you. So basically to treat others like this because, as he says, no one, no messenger is greater than the message. No follower is greater than the teacher. So if I would do this as Jesus, then you most certainly should be comfortable serving those around you, serving those that listen to you, serving those that love you in ways that are unexpected, but also in ways that aren't limited simply to washing feet, right? Jesus wasn't just creating this mandate that like all of Christianity revolved around the discipline of washing feet. No, but he was using it as a practical lesson to illustrate what he was willing to do to express his love. And the fact that he'd do that, even as the cross was on the horizon, makes an even more powerful moment. Well, German and I uh, have had the privilege over the past few semesters of facilitating and leading our, our DNA group when we have met before just as men's leaders in DC Chi Alpha. So this is like pre-digital ministry, pre-COVID. And I remember one time we're gathered in someone's backyard right outside of the gates in Georgetown. We've got our student leaders, our men from AU, our men from Georgetown. And we're kind of setting the vision for what a DNA group looks like, what a group for leaders looks like. And German had this idea, like, what if we wash the guy's feet? And and immediately I'm kind of like, I think I've seen some of their feet before. Not sure. (laughs) Not sure that's what I want my Sunday night to entail. Um, But as he kept talking about it, it made sense, right? Because... Our role as leaders is to serve our student leaders. Our role as staff is to equip and empower students to be able to share the good news and to live out the gospel on campus among their peers. 
It was a powerful moment. It certainly surprised everyone. Just ask Glenn, right? Like they show up, we've got some snacks, and then we're like, by the way, at the end, we're gonna wash your feet and we're actually gonna do it, right? And so like, as shoes are coming off, socks are coming off, sandals are coming off, it's like go time, right? And so German and I have towels, we're, we're like on our knees, we're speaking words of life into these guys, and then we're like, you know, doing the dirty part, washing their feet. Well, as interesting, intriguing, and maybe powerful as that was, it only kind of hits one of those layers, the symbolic ramifications. It doesn't really have a, a cultural reality or practical relevance in the 21st century, but it was one way for us that was hopefully memorable in a positive sense for these guys, for us to remind ourselves and to remind them that yes, even though we're here to lead, we're going to lead through service. We're going to pick up the mantle. We're going to pick up the example of Jesus and lead. Lead by serving. Lead by putting others first. By helping someone else succeed. It reminds me, I think Dick Foth is the one that said this, that discipleship is growing fruit on somebody else's tree. And that's what our DNA groups were about and continue to be about. How do we resource and invest in leaders as they invest in so many of you in the context of our community? All right, let's go back to verse 15. It says this, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And that's Jesus speaking. And here's a a key principle for us to write down and to reflect on this week. Jesus isn't just our master. He's also our model. Jesus isn't just our master. He's also our model. There's two books, in case you're looking for some extra reading. Maybe if you're a Georgetown student, you have that kind of Easter, spring break. I know, AU, you had Wellness Week, sorry. But you've got some time on your hands. There's two books. The first one is Jonathan Martin's Prototype, and the second one is Dr. Robert E. Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism, which we talk about often. Both of them approach this topic from different angles, but they're both saying the same thing, that Jesus, yes, deserves to be worshipped, deserves to be followed, but we're also designed to emulate him. And actually, that's what he would want from us and for us. In the book Prototype, Jonathan Martin makes the claim that all of the wonders, all of the miracles that Jesus performed actually come out of the human side of Jesus, not the divine side of Jesus. And they do so because of his reliance on the Father and because he's filled with the Spirit. Now, you might be thinking, why does it matter? Like if God is, it's already confusing. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Why do I have to locate the origin of where the miracles are coming from? But I love the practicality of Jonathan's message because then in scripture, when Jesus says later, all the things you've seen me do, you'll do greater things. It's no longer this poetic or hyperbolic expression. It's like, no, because I listened to the Father and was led by the Spirit, you too have the opportunity through Jesus to be connected to the Father and empowered by the Spirit. Jesus is not just our master, although he is. He's also our model. Dr. Robert Coleman in Master Plan basically says that Jesus didn't just do signs and miracles, that he was a brilliant and thoughtful, intentional strategist, that he was able to change the world, that you and I are talking about Jesus right now, thousands of years after he lived and walked on earth, because he chose to pastor and encourage the crowds, but to disciple and mentor and invest in the few. 
and the 12, and even in, in, in the close circle of three, and that that really turned the world upside down. All right, verse 17 gets us to another point that I think is specific for us in D.C., specific for you in college. Verse 17 says, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Here's the principle. Knowing is an important first step, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is doing. We see that all throughout the life of Jesus. That's why we read that strange admonition in Scripture to carry our crosses. And it can be confusing because we're like, didn't Jesus already carry a cross? And that kind of did the work of atonement and salvation. And the answer is yes. But also that we have a cross to bear, that there are going to be things where we need to live in self-sacrifice and self-denial so that we can enjoy being a part of God's family and enjoy our role in glorifying God. Here's the reality, and it's not one that sometimes I really like, and it's this, that the Christian life is designed to be a lab and not a lecture. The Christian life is designed to be more like a lab than a lecture. Now, in college and undergrad many, many, many moons ago, I hated labs. Whether it was a math lab, a computer science lab, a science lab, I hated it. And I know that's making Holly, one of our leaders, cringe. And she just started praying for me, and I appreciate that. But that's just the truth. And as I thought about it today, I think I really enjoyed lectures because they involved a little less work. I could take notes or not. I could do the reading or not. I could engage, but even when I engaged fully, it was mostly thinking. But when you were in a lab, you had to be, if you wanted to be safe and get the project done and walk out with your lab partner being your friend, you had to be full focus, fully engaged. And it wasn't just about thinking or knowing, it was about doing. I'm thinking about like biology or chemistry, like you would learn in the lecture and then you would put what you learned into practice in the lab. What Jesus was modeling with his followers, especially when he sends them off two by two, they come back and he provides some coaching for them on how they shared the good news of the kingdom coming. He's telling us that this is like a lab and it's a group project, things we normally don't like. But it's as we're doing, as we're teaching, as we're going, that we are going to be formed to look like Jesus. And here's one of the reasons why I think that our faith should look more like a lab than a lecture. It's that our behaviors reveal our actual beliefs. I mean, that's what hypocrisy is, right? It's when our stated ideals or beliefs are in contrast to our lived ideals and beliefs. Now, in case you've already read the other two books since I mentioned them, I've got a third book for you, Practical Atheist by Craig Rochelle. I mean, he gave us the Bible app. You can trust he's going to write a good book. But he basically makes this argument that many of us state that we're believers. We, we state that we believe in Jesus and the power of prayer, but we behave and live as if we're practically atheists, that, that God doesn't exist or God doesn't matter. Here's the thing, though. In Paul's letter to the church at Rome, in chapter 8, we find that Christ, when we put our faith in Him, our salvation, our adoption into the family of God is activated. And then God takes that faith we place in Christ, 
and uses that to form us to look more like Christ. Like that's the pinnacle of Romans 8. It's that, man, God is working towards our good. And what is our good in God's mind? It's that we would look more and more like the cruciform Christ, that we would look more and more like his son living and dying and being resurrected out of love for others. See, we are simultaneously saved from something by someone for something. I'll repeat that again. We are simultaneously saved from something by someone for something. We have to get that full picture. We've got to get it in order. We're saved from death and sin and our flesh. We're saved by someone, Jesus. And then we're saved for something, to live a life of freedom and enjoyment and abundance. See, when I am saved from something, but not for something, Christianity can be a checkbox. Like, I'm already in. I've crossed the line of faith. I've signed up. I'm good. And then we feel like, man, where is the adventure? Where is the journey from there? But on the other side, if we're saved for something to work towards the advancement of the kingdom and we forget that we are first saved before we preach saving, we're going to wind up in a dangerous place of hypocrisy and burnout. I think back to the story and I think to the trajectory that we often see in the life of Simon Peter. Peter is in a state of refusal, then he's in a state of overreacting, and then he's in a state of recovery, right? Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet. And he's like, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus is like, yes. And he's like, no, you're not. And then Jesus is like, yes, I am. And then, you know, he tries to double down. Simon Peter's like, fine, then wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, not going to do that. And then he recovers and finally kind of partakes. And we see that later happening, and we'll read it this week in the Gospel of John, like, Simon Peter's like, ah, no, you're not going to betray Jesus. Sorry, Judas, we're going to interrupt this kind of plan. And he pulls out his sword and he chops off someone's ear. And it gets a little bit violent, a little bit crazy. And he goes from like fighting for the Lord to like, then like <laughs> saying he doesn't even know who Jesus is. And then finally recovering and being restored. What's interesting that I've learned in studying this is that God can seemingly do more to change the world with a passionate Peter than with a timid Timothy, even though he loves them both, even though both are in the family of God and in the story of God in the Gospel of John. I mean, Peter, Simon Peter, he doesn't always get it right, but he is always trying. And it seems like in the kingdom of God as a son or as a daughter, man, it's better to have action and to try than it is to be timid and be out of the game. Verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Now, before you bust out that water basin and change clothes and grab a towel, there's two questions that I want to ask before we respond in worship that I think help us to begin to apply the principle behind this powerful passage. The first question is this, what area of serving others do you see as beneath yourself? And why? The second question is this. What does it mean to you that Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, never graduated from serving? And as his followers, never wants us to graduate from serving either. Those are two questions that maybe you want to pray about or journal about 
as we sing and respond in worship together. But as we answer those questions now and as we answer them in practice this week, let's remember to do so from the basis and from the language of love. Verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. Thank you.